All right, we are here with Jared, the dropship king. <laughs> and why have we crowned him that title? It's because, you know, out of everyone that I know, you've been involved with probably the most dropshipping stores. You know, you've either partnered on or made the most dropshipping stores. Um, but the main reason... And this is what I want to start the show with. And by the way, me and Jared are going to be doing most of the talking here because Mike's uh, my connection is pretty bad right now. But you've probably also called the most suppliers out of anyone that that I've seen, certainly. <laughs> um, so we're going to get into that. Uh, we have a lot to cover today. I want to talk about supplier acquisition. As I've mentioned, I want to talk about the biggest mistakes you've made in your dropshipping journey. Um, you've done this this system in the past where you uh, kind of set up a dropshipping incubator in in Vegas, uh, partnered with a bunch of people. I uh, sold a couple stores, and now you're uh, building a new dropshipping store. So I want to I want to get into the into all that. So for those that don't know, I guess you can introduce yourself, Jared. You've been you've been on the show before. I think this is what my third time. So, you know, thanks for having me. Um, it's crazy because I haven't really done much like content or like public speaking in like a year. So there's a lot that I feel like is going to need to be unpacked on this episode. Um, I guess the, the easy intro to myself would be, you know, I've been in the e-com game with you guys since I think 2016, 2017. Um, I've launched, I think, seven high ticket stores. Um, in terms of e-com in general, I don't even know, 15 different businesses maybe. Um, between my high ticket stores, I've done about, between all the stores, roughly 20 million in sales, which, you know, we'll get into some of the mistakes I've made in that process. Because obviously you hear 20 million in sales, you think, oh, I must be, you know, sitting on millions of dollars. But obviously there's there's good and bad that came with that. So we'll get into that. But um, Obviously, I used to have a community, which is not currently open. We had about 400 students and the students did millions in sales. You know, it kind of stemmed from you guys. So it's like a branch down from Build Assets Online. Like, obviously, I don't know how big your guys' community is at this point, but obviously what you guys have taught just has branched a lot bigger than people even realize. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's the intro for now. Well, we go for quality over uh, quantity <laughs> with, our, um, with our students. So... You know, it's kind of funny. I, I guess you could say that we taught you the game on, you know, we taught you the dropshipping game. You worked with us on some stores and then you went and made a community. Um, did we, did we rubber stamp that or did you just go and do that uh, without our, without our blessing? No, there was a blessing for sure. I mean, you actually, I don't know if you remember, <laughs> you actually, you taught me like the beginning stages of like setting up the freaking funnel. And, you know, what goes even what goes even deeper than that is I'm not going to say names, but like pretty much the two biggest or two of the biggest e-com names on Twitter right now were my students. So it's like it's gotten so yeah. like the trickle down effect has gotten so big at this point where it's like you guys build a community of hundreds of people. I built a community of hundreds of people. And now there's two other guys with communities of hundreds of people that kind of all stem from the same place. Yeah, if I could say something with my internet uh, sounding okay, I'd say about 90% of the dropship educational space, high ticket dropship educational space has come from either your, you 
or us in some capacity. Yeah. And I think like a good part about like us like doing it, like obviously I haven't been doing it, but like we definitely hit different demographics. I mean, we weren't even targeting the same social medias, which is obviously another side of it. But at this point, um, you know, if I was to even sell courses, like it would probably just be to direct to, to your guys's course at this point. Cause I'm just like, I'm past that. Yeah. That stage. <laughs> well, originally I, I think I wanted you to be our, uh, biggest affiliate, but listen, we're not going to go there. <laughs> I would, that was just a little bit of an aside and, you know, funny enough, I feel like a lot of, you know, your past students and students of our students or no, no, sorry, your past students and especially students of your students who teach high ticket dropshipping course, I see a lot of them ending up in our community. Um, and so whatever, I mean, at the end of the day, God bless. Um, <laughs> let's move on. I want to talk about, and I think a lot of the main thing the main value that I want people to get out of this show is supplier acquisition, because I think you have a lot to say about this and you've called more suppliers than probably anyone on, on the planet. <laughs> I think the number, it, it would have to be in the three to 400 range. And if you, if you branch down to the sites that I was a part of, it would have to be in the thousand plus range. Cause as you guys mentioned, or I don't know if you mentioned it yet, you know, I had this little incubator going on with um, roughly six different sites that, you know, I owned and co-owned. So um, I guess what, what was really the question? Is it just like, what's the advice? Well, no, well, yeah, yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to that. So <laughs> when, when you were first working with us, I think we worked on a store together. Um, one of the first things we did is we had you call suppliers. And I remember a, a supplier called you back and you answered the phone and you're like, hey, oh, who's this? <laughs> So obviously you've come a long way from that, but honestly, funny enough, I feel like your demeanor hasn't changed too much when you talk to them. Meaning I feel like you're, you're effective at talking to suppliers because of how confident and how nonchalant you are with these people. Like I remember um, you secured a, a supplier from one of our stores and you told the rep, you're like, you know, what are you selling right now? we're going to, we're going to double it. <laughs> so, so talk about your process when you talk to suppliers, because a lot of people are like, Oh, I'm, you know, they don't want to call. They're like scared. They don't know what to say. Like, what if I say this wrong? What if I say that wrong? Yeah. And I always think back to you and, and, and your approach, because you're not really afraid of saying anything wrong. No. Nah, and there's a lot of things I'll say regarding that. You know, it's like, just to say like, you got to say what you have to say to get your foot in the door, right? Like I've never had a supplier come back and say, oh, you said this and you're not doing this. So we don't want to work with you anymore. Like the double thing I've used, uh, I think the craziest claim I ever said to a supplier was, I remember one time I asked him, I was like, what's your guys' company revenue like monthly right now? And he goes, oh, we're doing about a million a month. I said, all right, well, <laughs> you take us on. We're going to take you to 10 million. I can't even say it. <laughs> I said, we're going to take you to 10 million a month. And he was like, well, that would be great. And you know, long story short, we did revenue with them, right? We certainly didn't do 9 million a month, but we were doing like 40, 50 K a month with them. And they loved us, right? Like this guy, me and this guy became, you know, relatively good friends. We would talk a lot. And, and I think that's the thing that people need to keep in mind, right? Is like, when you think about suppliers, do you think about this big corporation, this robot, this artificial intelligence, but you're really just 
trying to convince one one human being at the company to to take you on right like one of the suppliers that i worked with i remember like he was our rep so anytime we brought in sales it looked good on his part and he loved us because you know we were like the best dealer and he came and we came from him so yeah when you're calling suppliers like i understand when you're first getting started you've never made a sale before it's hard to have that confidence but like that's what you really need and, and there's really no way to teach it that's the thing it's it's very it's something that can really only come with experience. Like right now, as you guys have mentioned, I'm getting back into the game. You know, it's been like a year plus hiatus. I sold my two stores. So at this moment, I only have a demo store. But when I call them, I'm not calling them like I'm a beginner. Like I actually was calling suppliers yesterday and I was telling them like, look, this is not my first rodeo. Like I might only have a demo site. <laughs> I was like, I might only have a demo site. So I hate for you to judge me based off that. But, you know, I had this site that did 11 million in sales, this site that did 2 million, this site that did X amount. And, you know, I'm not afraid to say that. And listen, I'm not going to tell people here to lie to suppliers. By no means do I mean you should lie. But you definitely want to go in with that confidence as if you've done seven figures already. Because, yeah, like I said, you go in with the confidence, you get your foot in the yeah. door, you close them. And they're never going to come. Once you close them, they're never going to come back and unclose you. I guess that's the moral of the story. And let's let's be honest for a second. I mean, I haven't looked at your store, your new store. I don't even know what it is, but you know, I feel like your without some assistance, I feel like your graphic design skills and all that stuff, you know, let's just say is not top of the line. So you're not relying on impressing them with this amazing store and it looks all professional. You're just relying on your confidence to to talk to them. Yeah, it's funny you say that because I, I asked one of my friends who just started a new store um, who also has experience. And I was like, how many demo products did you put? And he was like 30, 40. And I'm sure that's what you guys recommend. But I literally put up like six demo products because I was like, you know what? Like I was listing them and I was just like, what's the point? You know, I'm going to call these guys and I'm going to freaking force them to to take me on. So I literally just threw on a few demo products and a few niches like the the logo. Very simple. Like, I'll be honest, like I'm not super skilled in any of these things like I don't have, I'm not tech savvy. Like I understand what makes a website convert just from working with you guys for years and doing this for years. But in terms of like savviness and graphic design, yeah, by no means am I an expert. And I'll say this, like starting so many stores and being a coach to so many people, it's like, you know, you see how gross some of these stores look that are doing millions in sales. And it's like, it'll open your mind, right? Like if you've never done a business before or don't know anyone, like you have this like perfectionism in your mind where you think everything needs to be perfect or you're not going to make sales. But once you're in the game long enough and you see some of the stuff that people put out and they make sale after they, they end up doing better than you where their website looks like absolute garbage. It's like, it'll just open your mind that, you know, you just got to take action, find that winning supplier. Yeah. Yeah. I think perfectionism is, is the big thing. And I don't know if you found it, you had a different demographic, than us in terms of your students. But I think a lot of our students suffer from this idea of perfectionism because they have a corporate job and they can't just deliver, like if you're, if you're in a corporate job and you have to deliver a project, it has to be as good as it's gonna be, right? But it's totally not that case for this. You wanna deliver the minimum viable product. You wanna start calling the second your website is just good enough to start calling. Yeah, and we don't recommend adding 30 demo products at all. I mean, I would kind of add the same amount as you, to be honest. Um, just just, just to 
add like some sort of collection to the homepage. I mean, my whole philosophy is um, make the homepage look look uh, decent. I would honestly, if it came down to it, I'm going to be honest with you. I would even call with like a coming soon page on the website. <laughs> like, cause I think it matters that, that little. So. Yeah. It's, it's, it's funny. Cause actually right before this, this live stream started, I actually just got an email that I'm pretty sure I closed the first supplier on the site. So it's like, I don't even, at this point, the demo products are going to go, they're going to be gone anyway, you know? And that's why I was like, you know, as I was listing them and I got to, I think, like I said, the eighth or ninth item, I was like, I'm done. Like I have yeah. a few different niches, you know, they can get the point, you know, but yeah, yeah, the coming soon is interesting because a lot of them do want to see something. But in the end of the day, if you're confident with what you're saying, you can definitely make it happen. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, do you ever like, do you have like a script in front of you when you call or is there like a, a line or like a pattern that you repeat every time you call or you're literally just kind of winging it every time? So it's funny you say that because obviously like you guys have scripts in the course and well listen i that's that's what people want like people yeah. need some sort of framework um i feel like that's the i don't really believe so much in scripts that much I, I like having like a for certain things i like having like a template like like for example just knowing that the, just the mentality of it like you they want you to get them more sales so for me that's kind of like enough to go from that but a lot of people want scripts because i don't know i guess they're just i've been calling suppliers since since the amazon days so whatever but the coloring books <laughs> yeah either way i mean do you have like a script like what's what's kind of your are you reading off something or are you going through the same phrases every time yeah so it's funny because when i'm on the phone i can't sit like i'm usually walking around so i can't be reading right so, you know, for me, I'm so simple with it at this point, because I remember when I first started calling, I mean, obviously you mentioned on the beginning of this, you know, I was saying, Ayo, which, you know, I don't recommend, but now like when I call, I literally just say, Hey, I'm interested in opening a dealer account or a wholesale account. Like I don't even introduce myself, which maybe, listen, maybe that's not the smartest way to not introduce yourself, but I'll just say, hello. Like I saw your guys' items. I love them. I don't, I, sometimes I don't even say all that. Sometimes I literally just say, you know, I was wondering who I can speak to in regards to opening up a wholesale or dealer account. And at that point, you know, because you know what it is, 90 percent of the time when you call them, the person that answers isn't even the person that you need to be speaking to. So yeah. it's like, you know, you'll say a whole spiel for nothing. So that's why usually when I call, literally, that's all I say. And usually they'll say, oh, who are you? What company are you calling from? And I know when it comes to the what company are you calling from? Some people name drop the LLC. Some people name drop the website. Like I usually just name drop the website or I'll say, you know, I'm calling from this LLC and we own this website. But yeah, I really don't have a script. I really just say that I'm interested in opening up a wholesaler dealer account because, you know, they're going to start asking you questions and how you answer them is kind of going to be, you know, the deciding factor if you close them or not. And a lot of times they're just going to make you email them. So the first thing I do, honestly, before I call is I go through the website to see if there's like a dealer uh, application, because if you fill that out before the call, then you're ahead of the game, right? Because if you call them and they're going to say, oh, you know, fill out the application, then you're kind of just wasting time. But if you filled it out first and then you call them at that point, you're kind of like putting them in this like stranglehold where they're like, all right, let's let's get something going for this guy. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I think that about covers the supplier acquisition stuff. I mean, it's it's very very simple. I think that's really all there is is to it. 
Um, but now I want to get into the biggest mistakes you've made as a coach, as someone that's done a lot of sales with, with dropshipping, because, um, you know, we always recommend people against doing certain things. And honestly, a lot of them are based off of the mistakes that we've seen you make. No offense. Cause it is, it isn't easy. There are certain things about high ticket drop shipping, uh, that, that could, that can create an easy trap to, to fall into. So can you get into some of that? Yeah. I did want to touch up on, I guess, one more thing for suppliers just to give the value is the fact that like, in the end of the day, like the suppliers you close are going to be the deciding factor if, if your business succeeds. So, you know, low competition, obviously high price points, like those are the only two things that you need to be looking into um, in terms of just making money, right? Obviously it's a numbers game as well. So the more suppliers you test, the better chance you make money. But of course, the more suppliers you test under the right criteria of just, you know, not necessarily zero drop shippers, but just a few drop shippers, you know, and like I said, good price points, good margins. If you're not doing that, then yeah, you're just going to waste money and waste time and you don't want to do that. But well, back well, that's an important thing too, is that people don't, you know, kind of put the puzzle together that if you want to actually even see their margins, you have to call them. Yeah. Cause not like you can find the price list on their website. So, you know, I feel like the main thing is you got to just pick up the phone and that's, that's the most important thing. The more you're picking up the phone, that's why I don't even like to, I don't even recommend people get uh, caught up in the metrics of the research. Like I feel like you're better off picking up the phone, getting yeah, the price list. The price list is everything. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I honestly say. Like when I'm, when I know I'm close to closing, like I'll literally say, just send over the dealer pricing. We'll take it from there. But that's yeah, exactly. Why, and then you can look at the pricing and then not even fill out the rest of the shit. Cause you're like, I don't want to do this. Exactly. And I was just going to say one more thing is like, especially when you're first getting started, you just have demo products. Like not every supplier is worth running ads to, but when all you have is a demo site, like you can't be picky and choosy. Like you just got to get some real suppliers on the site. And then this way, like it'll trickle down because I, I think you guys mentioned this in your course, like, you know, you can't really expect to close the real breadwinners off a demo site. Like the real breadwinners usually want to see that you have some sort of progress. So, yeah, when you have just a demo site, get a couple suppliers on the site just to make it real and and then take it from there. But I guess let's get into the mistakes. <laughs> so, yeah. So, you know, the thing about about this game, right, is like the money. I think there's a fine line between like making the sale, having the money and like the money becoming like real, right? Like I, I think it's very easy for you to have a lot of money in the bank and a lot of that money might not necessarily be yours. It might not be real money, right? So what I mean by that is, you know, there's a lot of items, a lot of orders that can get refunded, right? There's a lot of back orders in this business model on top of the fact well, that- Well, not, not, not really. I mean, I, I think at your peak, when you were peaking, that was the case because of like COVID and supply chains and stuff. I feel like nowadays the back order thing, I mean, it still is a factor, but it's not nothing like it used to be. No, I mean, what we were doing was just right. ridiculous. We were doing at one point, what, 900K months and 300K refunds. <laughs> like it was, it was absurd. But um, listen, there definitely will always still be like back orders in this model, which, you know, a lot of times does become a floodgate to make more sales because of the fact that like big, big box retailers like Home Depot and Wayfair won't sell it. But you know, the other side of it is like, sometimes suppliers don't always necessarily charge you right away. So like sometimes they'll do group billings, which, which I hate 
but like, you know, one of my biggest mistakes was I had a bunch of back orders for some high ticket items. They were like five to 10 K each. And the supplier decided to charge it all at once, like six months, seven months later. So it was like $70,000 that I pretty much just forgot about and had, I don't want to say I spent it already, but like, you know, I, I just didn't account for it. And I, I remember, so obviously, as you guys know, like with, Amex, with the Amex gold, you know, you get points to book trips. And, you know, I remember I was using my Amex rewards to book a trip to Miami. This is when I was living in Vegas. And I look at my credit card statement and I just see a $70,000 charge that I did not expect to see. And, you know, this is when I was living in Vegas with one of my um, friends or business partners at the time. And I remember just storming into his room. I threw the door open and I was like, dude, what is this? And he was like, <laughs> I don't know, man. And he looked into it and he's like, oh, it's legit. Like it checks out. And I was like, what do you mean it checks out? Like, I don't have this type of money right now. So, you know, that, <laughs> that mistake set me back for months. Right. And, and that wasn't just a one-time thing that happened a couple of times. So in terms of the biggest mistakes, right, not being fully on top of your finances, because think about it like this, if you're doing a million dollars a year in revenue, right, but maybe you're profiting 80K a year, that means a million dollars is coming in and out of your bank account, but only 80,000 of that is actually yours. So it's very easy for you to make mistakes. Now, don't get me wrong. It shouldn't be that easy as long as everything's separated, right? And I guess that'll be the next thing I'll say is like I had four different stores going into one bank account with, you know, <laughs> one one credit card. So it was like, you know, if the P&Ls, even if you are on top of the P&Ls, it's like you have to be on top of the P&Ls, but you have to be on top of the bank account as well, the credit card statements as well, because it's very easy to mismanage money when you have that much coming in and out, but only a small percent is actually yours. Um, you know, another thing I would say is scaling a supplier that isn't necessarily trustworthy, right? Like, you know, I don't know if you guys want me to give away niches. Like I, I can give away one niche that I don't think any of us are in. Um, so the niche was um, aquariums, like home aquariums. And, you know, the product was a great product, right? It was making sales. So you would think, oh, I'm making sales. The margins are good. Let me just keep scaling it. But what ended up happening was these home aquariums were just breaking every single time. Like, I'm not even kidding. Like 75% of the orders were literally getting destroyed in the shipping. So it was like, you know, we're making great money, but we're getting either chargeback or angry customer after angry customer. So um, that along with a supplier not being able to fulfill inventory, like just because a supplier can make you a lot of money, like you need to watch out for the red flags because if you scale something just because the money's there, but the supplier can't fulfill the orders, like it's just not going to be worth it in the long run. So, you know, mismanaging money, making sure that you're scaling, you know, suppliers that don't have all these red flags. Um, and I guess the last thing would be, you know, overextending myself in terms of partnerships, right? Like once I learned this skill of drop shipping and I started teaching all my friends, you know, at first it seemed like I was a genius because I had six different sites, Pretty much all of them were doing 100K plus in revenue. I think at my peak between all my sites, I did 1.2 million in a single month. But the problem is, is like, you know, my friends, they weren't necessarily on top of things as much as I thought. And the stores weren't necessarily as profitable as much as I thought. So it's like, you know, when you're spending ads, right? Like, it's very easy for you to say, let me scale this to the moon. And, you know, it's very quick. You can get to 10K a month, 20K a month in ads. And maybe you're doing 200K in sales. But the problem is, is if the, if the supplier can't fulfill, 
and the back order date keeps getting pushed back or the items keep getting damaged and you're getting chargebacks, like if you're spending a lot in ads, right? You got to keep in mind that the ad money, you'll never get refunded, right? So like my most, I don't want to say my most successful store, but like the store that I think was like the best overall was a store where we were never spending more than two or 3,000 a month in ads. And it was doing between like 70 and 120 a month in revenue. But the thing is, it was always very profitable. The headaches were always very minimal. You know, the back orders were minimal. I think the store in its entire existence got two chargebacks, which as you guys know, I had a store once that we were working on that had like 100 chargebacks. Like, so it's like, you know, I think that you have to find that balance of wanting to make a lot of money and actually, you know, having peace of mind. Because if you scale to the moon in this business model, but you don't account for peace of mind, you know, you're going to end up ruining your life. <laughs> I mean, this is not really specific to the high ticket dropshipping model either. To be honest with you, I mean, I know a couple business owners of all different types that do this sort of thing. Like um, this one guy I know, he sold like uh, like some sort of like all these pet products. So, you know, it's actually much easier to mess this up in a business model where you take inventory. Cause he thought, oh wow, like I'm he he had this one product that was like selling like crazy and he thought he was gonna take over the whole country as like the main um like retailer of, of this product. So, you know, with other businesses, especially like more ones where you hold inventory, more uh, real businesses, you know, he expanded warehouse space, he ordered all this stuff, and then you're talking about a real problem. So, you know, with high ticket dropshipping. It's almost like you just got to not be, I don't want to say stupid, but you just got to, you know, have a good handle on, handle on everything, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, that's, no, that's I, what it comes down to. And we always, so we, maybe, maybe me and Mike, we, we basically touch our, we've pretty much done this historically is we touch our bank accounts for drop shipping probably like once a year, meaning we remove money from it. And we would only do that during like, like when we have to pay taxes. So we have to pay taxes once a year. We're like, all right, we got to withdraw from taxes. We'll withdraw, you know, take a little distribution. And that was that. So I feel like maybe what you and some of your friends were doing is you were like looking like monthly or quarterly and being like, oh man, my account's uh, fat right now. Let me take some out. You don't even know what I was doing. I was literally, <laughs> I was not paying off my credit cards and just using the money to buy crypto. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, it was, and I'll be honest, at one point I was up like two, 300 grand on that. And it was like, I felt like a genius. Right. But then the bear market came around and I was down 200 grand and it was like, well, how do I even pay these credit card bills? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that has nothing to do with the model itself. I think it just has to do with, I don't know. I don't even know. Like, just don't do that. Just don't do that. Well, let me well, ask you this. Can Not I say to... something? I don't know. Can you? <laughs> I would say that high ticket dropshipping wound up being the bailout for the crypto bear run because he had these assets that he was able to sell and, you know, again, yeah. not be totally crushed by having all this crypto and, and having it go down. Yeah. I'll say two things regarding that. Um, I definitely took that gamble with the assumption that I would sell. And that was a gamble, right? Like, cause you know, for anyone that's never sold a business, you don't sell it overnight, right? It takes, it takes six, seven months after you find a buyer. So it could really take a year to sell a business. 
So like that wasn't a smart gamble. It was a gamble that I took and it, it worked. It didn't work because I lost money, but it worked. It, I didn't go bankrupt only because I was able to sell my businesses for, you know, almost seven figures between the two of them. But the thing is, is when I had like, like the most seamless success I had with dropshipping was doing exactly what Joe just said. So I remember one of the stores I started with a buddy of mine was, uh, you know, we put 10 grand into a bank account and we actually started Amazon FBA and it didn't work out. So maybe after like six months of doing it, the bank account had like seven grand left in it. So that's when we were like, all right, let's go to high ticket. You know, we know it works. And we never touched the account. Like we touched it a couple times for a couple things, but we ended up growing that 7K um, to when we sold the business and everything was done, every bill was paid, every supplier was paid off. It was at about 320,000 was when we shut everything completely, sold it and paid ourselves, you know, 160K each. So yeah, that's, that's really the way to do drop shipping is to really just put a couple, put, you know, five, 10 grand into an account. And, you know, once you grow it to, I mean, I can't really put a number on once you grow it, but once you know, like, you know, all the invoices are covered, everything's covered. You're never going to have this nightmare story. You know, that's when you can start paying yourself. Yeah. So uh, I want to actually start talking next about more, more about, well, we've already covered this, but maybe we can get into more details of, you know, how you structured your partnerships and all that, or maybe we'll just talk about the selling. But before we get to that, I do want to ask, I mean, it seems like the crypto market is uh, heating up again. So, you know, I feel like if you have a lot of money sitting in the bank account right now, maybe we should guide the people on what are some shit coins that we should. Uh... No, I'm just I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But are you going to get back into crypto? I'm still in crypto. Like I never I never sold. So like my my crypto portfolio right. was up a lot on the year. Um, like I'm still, so, so here's the thing about crypto is like, I got in at a good time, right? I got into crypto at like 2020. So mm -hmm. I got in, I got in Bitcoin like right before that 2020 bull run. Like it was honestly all luck. Right. I remember, <laughs> I think I bought like 50 K worth of Bitcoin and Ethereum at like 50. It was, I think Bitcoin was at 15,000, one five, not five zero. Mm -hmm. And Ethereum was at like $500. So I got in at like, I put like 50, 60 K in and it grew like three X. So it was worth like 150. And that's when I just started going crazy. Like that's when I started to stop paying suppliers and just started putting every dollar I could. I think I put 25 K into crypto for eight weeks straight. So 25 K a week for eight weeks straight. Now I was making a lot of money. Like between all my businesses, I was making like 30 to 40 K profit per month. Like me personally, obviously I had partnerships. So I, I was making a lot, but I wasn't making enough to put 25K a week in, right? So um, what ended up happening was, because you would obviously say, oh, Jared, you must be up now in crypto if you got in at such good points. But what happened is when Bitcoin got towards like the top, so like 60, 70K, mm -hmm. um, that's when I got really into like the shitcoin and leverage game. So, mm -hmm. you know, it kind of bit me in the ass because I went from having like seven, eight Bitcoin to like, buying a bunch of altcoins, shitcoins, and taking leverage plays. So then, you know, when the bear market came, my portfolio pretty much dumped like 98%. And had I just stayed in Bitcoin and Ethereum, right now I would definitely be up a large amount. But since I expanded into the alts and the leverage, um, now that, because because it's funny, I was talking to a friend yesterday and he's like, well, Bitcoin's at 50K, you must be up or back to even. And I was like, dude, I still got to make like another 100 grand to be back to even on my portfolio. So you know, I'm probably up 
I'm up over a hundred grand this year, which is obviously amazing. And I'll be honest, I'm definitely holding for the long run. Um, but I'm not buying shit coins anymore. Like, like I'll tell you guys, obviously you guys know the story. Like I put five grand into a shit coin and it ended up being worth 200 grand in three days. But that ended up being one of the worst things that ever happened to me, right? Because you would think, like, you know what it is? Someone that makes 200 or 100 grand off a shit coin in three days, they don't just take that money and buy a house, right? They, they develop a gambling addiction and they just keep buying more shit coins until it's all gone. And I feel like that's something that you guys like preach is just the fact of how like foundation and like building money the right way is how you never go broke, right? Like chasing those fast wins. I think like obviously everyone knows that majority of lottery winners go broke right now. I never hit the lottery, but when you see a shit coin 50 X in three days, that's pretty similar to hitting the lottery. So it's like, the thing is when you have money come in fast, you're more, you're, you're more likely to lose money fast than you are to just take that money and say, let me buy a house. Let me give it to my parents. Let me, you know, create generational wealth. So it was like that hundred K win in three days probably turned into a 200k loss in three months and ultimately now at this stage of my crypto career um you know i'm not only in bitcoin and eth i do believe though like so i actually went to a bitcoin conference and i heard mark cuban speak and i know you guys don't like shark tank or mark cuban but he did say something that actually stuck with me was which was pretty much and now this should be common sense for most people but it wasn't for me was like if you're going to invest in something you need to know what the business does how it generates revenue like it can't just be, oh, it's going to the moon, right? So if you're going to invest in cryptos, like at least take the time to think to yourself and research, how is this crypto actually generating revenue? Because at least you know that if it has a real means, a real business, that it will survive, right? Like everyone loves, oh, buy the dip, you know, diamond hands. But the problem is if you're buying the dip on a shit coin, like the dip will just keep going and never come back, right? But if you're buying the dip on real assets, like in the end of the day, crypto, a lot of these altcoins, they do have 10, 20x potential. You know, everyone knows that. But if you're buying shit coins, then you're going to get fucked. But if, if you're buying real altcoins that are real assets, you know, then you can sleep at night. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> so um, I guess let's, let's pivot to, let's, maybe we should answer this question. Uh how do you guys not get overwhelmed with being too much to do, being active in Discord, running dropshipping stores, doing land, doing YouTube? Well, I think the bet like for so for Discord, we set it up to where we can go through it once a day and then that's it. Um and basically all these things is like like YouTube, we do like once a week, if that. So I think it's a lot about doing things consistently for a long period of time and just sticking to the um, sticking to them week over week like with kindle for example i feel like that was one of the first business models that we did the most important thing was that our uh, our coach taught us was like you have a, a publishing schedule and so whether it was every two weeks every month a new book was was coming out so i think that's the good philosophy is um you know, you kind of have like a, a thing that you run through. And of course, uh, outsourcing is, is also very important. Outsourcing takes a lot of uh, energy as well. So if you can, it's very easy to, like, say, so say you're going into the week, 
you could do a bunch of training, create a bunch of training content for a VA, train a VA, or you could run everything yourself that you know how to do. And it's very easy to do the latter versus just the, the training part. So I would say those, those three things are important. I, I do feel like I also- Maybe Jared can give some, oh, sorry. Maybe Jared no. can give some VA advice considering we had uh, eight VAs on one store at a certain <laughs> point. That's actually what I was going to say, Mike. I was going to say, I feel like I have to have the record for most VAs on a dropshipping store, you know, like eight or nine total. I think we had what we had one person that was full-time chat, two or three full-time emails, two or three full-time calls. And that doesn't include the listers too, one or two listers. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, in terms of VA advice, I mean, you know, I think it comes down to who you hire, right? Like obviously the training is going to be up to you. It's going to be important. Like Everyone has their own systems for their business, but it comes down to who you hire most importantly, because like I've had some experiences of hiring some of the worst VAs. So it's like, it sounds a lot simpler than it is, but it really comes down to the competence behind the VA, how good their English is. And honestly, this is something a lot of people don't think about how good their connection, right? Like I remember one of my VAs, like I didn't even consider this, like you get on a call with them, you can't even understand them, not because they don't speak English, because it was always ruffled. It was always like staticky. So like they need to have good connection, not to mention in the Philippines, there's always storms, which, you know, you're going to get that excuse all the time. Oh, sorry. There, there was a hurricane. So like, you know, their, their willingness to learn is obviously very important. Like they're like that, that side, but yeah, those things are the most important. Like just them being willing to learn and their competence, their English. Um, you know, you don't past experience is kind of irrelevant. So a lot of times past experience is honestly a bad thing because they just use that as like a reason to, to argue with your way of doing business. So yeah, that, that's my advice. Well, okay. if you were hiring a VA and you were doing a million in sales and they said they were going to get you to 10 million, would you hire them? <laughs> <laughs> I, I would probably say, you know, how do you plan on doing that? Cause you're not going to do it. It's actually funny. I remember when me and you were doing business together, Mike, and I was like, I want to be a millionaire. And you were like, well, you're not going to do it from just answering customer service calls, you know? So that's what I would say to them. I would say, look, you're not going to 10x my business by just answering calls. You know, if you're going to start calling suppliers and running ads, then yeah, maybe you can help. <laughs> Let's get to this question. Maybe does my mic sound okay? Or do I sound like uh, all fucked up? Uh, it's mainly like your lips are disconnected from the, your voice. It's good enough. <laughs> oh, okay. All right, Jared, what niches to avoid? Um, so niches to avoid is an interesting question. Um, obviously, just low ticket products in general. Um, I think it's more about which suppliers to avoid, right? Like any niche could really work. Like obviously you can't do electronics, right? You can't do, you know, PlayStations. Like you can't do stuff with super brand authority. Like obviously you should know that by now. Um, obviously you can't do low ticket products, but in terms of like, the general high ticket niches, there's really no answer in terms of what to avoid, right? Like if they're high ticket items and the competition is low and the pro and the price points are good, like it could work. Like anything could really work um, in terms of like what's going to give you the most potential profit. Like if you can somehow find something where there isn't a lot of competition generically, which is obviously very difficult, like, you know, most of the money comes from like the branded funnel, but yeah, there's really no right answer in terms of what niches to avoid. It's just 
finding suppliers within the range uh, or the scope of high ticket items and the competition not being overwhelming, right? Like if you see, like, like I'll give you an example, right? Let's say you're doing trampolines, right? Like a generic trampoline, you're probably going to see 20 plus retailers. You're probably going to struggle. Find a trampoline with some sort of element of uniqueness. I think that's what it comes down to, right? I don't think it's about which niches to avoid. I think it's about if you can find, let's just say, general products that have some sort of element of uniqueness to them, right? Like 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 saunas, right? Everyone knows saunas. It's a very basic niche. Selling a basic sauna is probably not going to be easy. But if you can find that sauna that maybe has some sort of cool setting to it, maybe it has a cold plunge setting to it, you know, something like that. <laughs> I'm just spitballing, right? But that, that's my point. It's like, you know, finding a product where, you know, you can somehow take over generically is where you're going to make the most money. Um, but obviously, yeah, there's no right answer in terms of which niches to avoid. Yeah, I mean, I think you said a lot of important stuff there. And I think with our old store, one of the ways we were actually able to do really well was because we wound up having a product that did do well generically because for what the product was, it had a good price point in the space. And so, again, that's something you're only going to know once you actually get in with that supplier, you get their their pricing. And then also, you know, the margin has to be good. They have to be, they have to be good on, you know, the supplier relationship side too. Yeah, no, it's, it's and, I, and I know you meant, I think you mentioned that in the course, which I do want to say this guys, like as someone who's built his own course and has done 20 million in sales, it's like when I took a year off and I decided to come back, like I, I wasn't prideful, you know, I was like, you know what, let me start like I'm a noob and watch their guys's course from literally the, the beginning. Like, so like no matter how far you've come along in this business, never be too prideful to ask for help or, or ask a mentor. But Mike did mention that I remember. And, and that's something I a hundred percent agree with. Cause I remember I was selling two different pro so it was the same exact niche the same exact product right but it was two different suppliers one supplier was charging eight grand one supplier was charging two grand and what do you guys think right the supplier that charged two grand we were making sales for almost every day the supplier that was charging eight grand we were making one sale a month if that so you know making sure that the supplier's price point makes sense competitively is very important because otherwise you're just not going to make a lot of sales um, and, and another thing too, I remember Mike, when we had that store together, like I remember our best winner, I remember you were like questioning it, like, oh, I don't know if this fits the niche. I don't know if this is a product we should sell. So you know, I don't want to say, I would say don't even trust anything, right? Like if you see the price point and you see that it fits the criteria, just go ahead, launch the ads and give it a shot. I see you made a face, Mike, like, oh, I didn't say that, but I remember. <laughs> no, no, I was making a face because Joe was touching his mic and it was so loud in my ears. <laughs> You don't want nor you know you're normally you don't wear headphones, <laughs> and so um, normally I don't hear these these criticisms, but now I've you know, I've know always, you're typing, you're smacking the mic, you're dropping shit. I'm very, yeah, it really comes through when I'm. I'm very fidgety. Wearing them. <laughs> I'm about to go, listen. I'm about to go turn it up and get a melon right now. So go, yeah, I'm about to say go go eat a melon to distract yourself. People will complain fidgety. about the chewing. I'm very fidgety. Um, <laughs> I got. I got to get a fidget spinner. What about drop shipping? Those are those good. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Uh, I see this question. I don't know if you want to ask it or if you want me to just answer it. Uh, you you uh, you read it and then you answer it. All right. So, what was the most challenging hurdle you struggled to overcome when you were first starting out? 
So, you know, if you've been here for the whole episode, you know, you've heard about a lot of my hurdles and challenges, right? But a lot of those weren't when I was first starting, right? So when I was first starting, um, I would say the most challenging hurdle really, and this is a simple hurdle, is just is just the momentum, right? Like the thing about drop shipping and building a business is like when you're at zero, you know, it's an uphill battle, right? Like you're you're pushing a boulder up a mountain when you're at zero. But once you find that real winner, like you know what it is? Your 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 daily tasks shift, right? Because you go from building a website to calling suppliers to listing items to running ads. So then you find this winner all of a sudden, and it's like you're you're this overnight success where instead of doing all those things, now you're dealing with customer service, you're processing orders. So the, the most, the most, the biggest hurdle is to overcome that is to go from, you know, the building side to like the managing side. And then you have to go back from managing to building, right? Because then you're stuck in this, in this loop of just the day-to-day -day tasks. So I would say that's the number one thing is to go from that side of building, you know, zero to hundred K a month and get to that hundred K a month. So now you're making, you know, probably 10 to 15 K profit per month. And then once you're there outsourcing all of those, those managing tasks. So then you can go back to building because you don't want to be stuck in the day to day. Like I know people that have owned dropshipping stores for two, three years and are still doing the same customer service. And there's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, I feel like anyone that's into entrepreneurship is into growth. Right. And, and you'll recognize that like when you're stuck in the customer service loop, you're not in a growth mindset. You know, like I used to always say, you're maintaining the yacht instead of building a bigger yacht, you know, and, and that's that, that that's the hurdle is like go from the building to the managing and then outsource the managing so you can go back to the building, whether it's calling more suppliers for your current site or building a second site. But, yeah, just 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 keep pushing until you get to that, you know, two three winning suppliers and you're making doing 100K a month revenue because 100K a month is a good benchmark. Like, obviously, you can take it to more, you know, you can take it to any number you want. But I feel like 100K is like a good number. But also don't be so obsessed with the revenue. You know, be obsessed with the profit, right? Like I'd rather have a store do 70K a month in revenue and, you know, 8K profit than 150 and 10K profit, you know? You keep saying right. this um, this term winning product. Is this, do you really believe in that philosophy? Because I feel like, you know, we never really on, on a lot of our stores, we've had, we've had products that have sold more than others for sure. But I feel like the whole thing with high ticket dropshipping is generally speaking, there aren't, there isn't one winning product. It's not like low ticket where you find like this, this viral thing, like you're selling the dog paw cleaner and then it's, you know, it's super hot and then it's gone. Um, what do you, what do you, what do you mean about this winning product thing? I guess I should rephrase it to winning brand more than winning product, right? Because usually if a brand is finding success, you know, they're going to have a catalog of items that you'll most likely be able to sell. But with that being said, like, you know, you might test brands where there's just no volume. You know, there's no calls there. Maybe you're spending money. Maybe you're not spending money. So, you know, you need to find that brand that is just going to again, make you feel like this overnight success. Cause that really does happen. You know, like some of the, sometimes when you find that winning brand, it's like, it honestly almost happens instantly. Like you launch the ads and within a week or two, you're making sales and, you know, then you see potential to scale it. And, you know, I remember when we did our first site together, my first high ticket site, I think it was like the first two months of running ads, we did like 10 K total revenue. And then that third month, 
we found that big winner and it was like we went from 10k 10k total to like 40k a month to 60k a month to like three months later we were at 100k per month revenue and then we did 100k for like 30 months straight you know and it's like your life is never the same you know i I used to always say this it's like you know making 10k for one month is is not the same as making 10k 10 months in a row you know if you're good with with finances too it's like and you're actually saving some money like you know it's a big difference between just making 10k once and making 100k you know yeah all right. Well, I feel like we've kind of covered everything we need to know about about uh, drop shipping here. Um, I do want to talk about kind of what's in your future. What you oh, well, we didn't really get into selling the store. We got a lot of questions here, Joe. Yeah, I was going to say we got to get to the questions, and we got to talk about how uh, selling the store has kind of rescued you from from cri- the crypto bear market. <laughs> Thank God, right? Because otherwise, I would have had to sell at the bottom, and I'd be freaking. Not happy right now. <laughs> well, that's that's the funny part. I remember I was having this conversation with Mike. I remember I, I was at a point where, you know, I lost a lot in crypto, but I obviously believed it was going to come up. And I didn't want to sell a store. At this point, I had already sold one of my stores, but I had another store that was making like 10K a month. And I remember I was on the phone with Mike pretty much just needing life advice because it was like, I don't want to sell my crypto, but I don't know what to do. And he was like, dude, why don't you just sell the store? And like, I never thought about it. Like, I, I guess... You know, it just didn't cross my mind. And I was like, yeah, that's a good point. So I want to say it was August of, it was like July of 2022 when I had that conversation with Mike. And I didn't sell the store officially until April of 2023. Just to give you guys a timeline, like it took like nine months, eight months from the moment I decided to sell it to actually sell it. And uh, yeah, it it was well, literally, why? why did it take so long? Yeah. Um, so first of all, I started with Empire Flippers and they were just, uh, you know, I don't want to talk bad about them because I know you guys like them, but they were terrible. Like they didn't even get anything. Matter of fact, the only thing that Empire Flippers got was someone who pretended to be a buyer just so they can get into our back end and then started posting our back end sales as if it was their store, which, you know, uh. we, which we called them out and, and reported them to Empire Flippers. Like, yo, these guys are just pretending to be buyers to just scam people. So, you know, I feel like Empire Flippers is not the best place to sell a high ticket dropshipping store. They're good for like, I guess, other types of businesses. But I feel like Quiet Light has been a lot better when it comes to e-commerce. Yeah, which is which is what I ended up doing. So I ended up going to Quiet Light, which I would say for anyone that is that does have a six figure plus store to just go straight to Quiet Light because. Once you're on the Empire Flipper exclusivity, there's a lot of like things behind it. Like I don't think Quiet Light can reach out to any buyers that are on that list. Um, it, it just makes things messy. So yeah, I feel I, like the Empire Flip, like like the sales rep, it's more. Um, I mean, in our experience, I feel like the sales rep is not as like good as Quiet Light, where we've had Pat on the show. Um, I don't know if there's anyone else that 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 handles it, but. You know, he knows how to talk to the buyers a lot better than the person from. I feel like we've gone through like several people at Empire Flippers, and they've just kind of been like, I guess, green. Like recently, got the job, and they're just so strict to the process that there's like no, you know, there's just no magic there. There's no extra flair of, you know, attracting the buyers and convincing them. I think uh, I think it comes down to the size of the store. Like I think if your store is something you can sell for like 100k or less, I think Empire Flippers has a good market. 
Um, like, I don't know if my uh, my girlfriend's listening to this. She actually sold her store with Flippa for like 100K, which is insane. And it's funny because she tried Quiet Light and they pretty much were like, no. So I think that if your store is under like 200K, that I don't even know if Quiet Light would want to work with you, where Empire yeah. Flippers can probably get it done. But I think if you're over the 200K mark, like I feel like you need a real broker. And there's other options similar to Quiet Light that I would recommend if, if i needed to use them like if you're listening to this because i think just like i mean it's like selling real estate right you want to hire a broker so it's like if you're trying to sell a two three hundred two three hundred k company like you almost need a real human being broker helping you or empire flippers it's just a, a bunch of virtual assistants passing you around not really trying to sell your business absolutely shout out pat yates <laughs> twilight brokerage absolute beast of a man um, yeah. so did you finish the story or should we get back to the questions well what was the story we're talking about selling the stores i i, I lost where uh, we were going with this yeah no i mean i sold obviously like we said um a store that we were partnered on um we sold that store for like 600 plus and then another store for 240 so you know i I know like I feel like people listening to this, they don't like the idea of selling a store. Like I feel like the average person likes the idea of income a lot more. But I think it has to cross your mind that like there is a balance in life between actually having money and having income. Right. Like, you know, I remember I saw once on social media, it was like, would you rather have like $10 million or 10K a month for the rest of your life? And everyone was like 10K a month. And I'm just like, what's wrong with these people? Like, you know, take the millions. It's not going to be that hard to recreate 10K a month, you know? So personally, like as much as I think that high ticket drop shipping will be around forever, like I feel like the best game plan is to, is to own the store for a few years and try to sell it. You know, that, that's my personal opinion. I The thing is, right, is like drop shipping has a very strong foundation compared to other business models. But there is still the possibility of, you know, someone who owns a store losing focus, losing determination you know stop like like you know you just stop doing what got you there in the first place right so with that being said you know i've seen a store go from being worth three hundred thousand to being worth zero so it's like you, know, you don't want to let that happen like like if you find yourself in this position where you stop calling suppliers and you stop growing the business but you've been making money for a year or two like you should probably consider selling because at the worst case you could just start from zero with a couple hundred k to your name but yeah, like I said, I had a friend who was making 10, 20K a month, you know, stopped calling suppliers for whatever reason, you know, one supplier got rid of the map policy, another supplier got saturated. Next thing you know, the store stopped making money and he didn't want to, he didn't want to put in the work to rebuild it. So he just let it go, let it turn to zero. And, you know, you don't want to let that happen. That's what I'll say. Yeah. I mean, all you crypto kids want to buy low and sell high. So when the store is at its high, that's when you should sell it. And even if people don't like the idea of selling a store, I don't know why they, they wouldn't like that idea, but a better way to think about it is you're going to get paid out on what the store is going to do anyway for 24 to 36 months for two to three years, right? If you sell it a 2X multiple, a 3X multiple, that means you're getting paid for what the store is going to do. And then after your non-compete agreement is up, which is usually two to three years, then you can always recreate the store again because there's also a good chance that whoever bought the store probably screwed it up. I don't know if that's something you want to talk about, Mike, how uh, 
the people who bought the store off us for 600k have made like 10k in the last year off it <laughs> but say that again <laughs> i said you know the people who bought the store off us have kind of ran it into the ground and and that's the thing it's like you can't skip steps oh, in this thing. yeah like you know you kind of have to learn we don't, need, we, don't need, we don't need to talk about that but what we could say is um i think i don't know i feel like a lot of people that will buy stuff like they don't they're not qualified buyers like they don't know exactly what they're doing um yeah that's happened a few a few times like they just they just have too much money they're looking to invest it somewhere or whatever well it's like it's like uh mark's cuban mark cuban's wonderful advice is they're getting into something they don't know the inner workings of it yeah so that's kind of the problem is like if you buy into a business where you don't know exactly what's going on then it's bound to fail because yeah you don't you don't know what makes it tick and we've even we've fallen victim to this a little bit like we've bought some um like seo based sites and maybe we didn't know as much about seo or like we didn't know all the interlinking that was going on or what was making that site actually really work and so we weren't able to kind of grow it like we thought we would be able to it's probably easier just for us to make the site from scratch because we know the exact structure and so we know exactly how it's running and we know how to grow it based off of all that yeah yeah i think uh i think that's one of the things i love about this model to be honest is like there isn't that many advantages to being like richer when you start this model like as a matter of fact i found that a lot of the most successful people in this business were people that like had nine to fives were super hungry like like when i i remember when i was doing the course i remember i had a student who had he showed me his his crypto account he had 20 million dollars in there and he bought the course off us and literally just didn't do anything with it and that's the thing a lot of the people i spoke to that were super successful that were like all right i want to do drop shipping like they never made it work right like the people who were always successful at drop shipping were the people who were genuinely hungry and wanted to change their life and i think that's what's so special about this it's like there's no shortcut of just buying a store and having millions and being successful it's like either you work your ass off and make it work or you don't yeah well that's why it's such a good entry level online business because you don't have to have any of these prerequisite skills of being able to do facebook ads perfectly being able to write copy perfectly it's like i mean you proved it all you need is just that sheer determination and a little bit of confidence and just take action get that momentum and if you could do that for a long enough amount of time you don't fuck up your finances where you run out of money then the chance of success is really really high and you're building something that you could sell as an asset, get a huge lump sum of cash. So it has this very unique um, qualities to it that anybody can get into just as long as they have the actual will to do it. Yeah, exactly. So let's get to some of the questions. We're almost uh, at an hour here. Hey, Bao, what's your thoughts on going into a niche where the product is a bit technical and has installation requirements? Anything I can do to provide service slash understand the products better? I mean, I can't think of a better thing than uh, being in the niche and trying to solve these installation requirements and service problems. Um, you know, obviously you can, I mean, it's a big, uh, I don't know where, where you're drop shipping, but if you're shipping to the, the same locations a lot, you can develop kind of a network of installers possibly. But I think the only way you're going to problem solve this is actually being in the, 
in the space that you're talking about. Yeah, I feel like uh, I feel like there's two things about that. Like one, you end up getting the same question over and over again. So it's like you'll eventually know the answer, but like you can't be afraid to just get the supplier on the line, right? Like obviously if you're selling a new product that you don't know anything about, like, listen, you should try to find the answer, whether it's in the product pages, Google, but there is going to be a lot of times where you have no choice but to get the supplier involved and you just can't be afraid to do that. And hopefully once you get the answer a couple of times, you end up getting the same question over and over again, and then you'll just know the answer. Uh, Eric says, how do you guys feel about Bing ads? Is Google ads the only way you guys aim to run ads? Mike. Yeah, Mike, you got to take that one. Oh, am I going to, uh, it says I got like a little, uh, internet issue. So um, do your best. Works. the only problem is that they don't, yeah, they don't scale as well. So kind of the, the scaling we talked about earlier, where you can just take what's working, literally increase bids on it and expect it to perform the same. Like Bing ads, you can't expect anything out of it when it comes to scaling. And that's really all that I could say. It's good to like run 20% of your ad spend through it, just get to like a base level type uh, type thing. But it's really, I don't trust it for scaling. Why did you guys quit uploading these live streams to Spotify? I listen to them all when I'm at work. Um, they should be uploaded to Spotify. I honestly don't really know what's going on with the... Hold on, I'm about to. I'm going to paste this question to our VA that uh, uploads to Spotify right now, <laughs> and I'm going to be like, "Why? Yeah, why is on Spotify?" Yeah, I don't know. I'll find out. I'll make sure that they get back up on the Spotify. Uh, Martin Duncan says, "Do you guys ever <laughs> ever miss going to nine to five, working with friends at work, or is the free life better?" Uh, I mean, I hated going to work. Like it was like, I don't know. Uh, it's not, to me, it wasn't good. Like I, I had, you know, I had a couple friends and I feel like the main thing I would bond about with my friends at work was like how much we hated work. <laughs> so I think, honestly, I feel like I have a different perspective than you guys in this regard. Cause like, you know, it was, I tried, obviously you guys know, I tried trading full time. I'm like, you know, the thing about trading is like, you can't really do it full time because of the fact that like, you know, there's not much to do. A lot of times the market isn't moving. It, it wasn't for me, right? Like I felt so unfulfilled. Like I just didn't enjoy life. And I think that there was a lot of times where I was like, you know what? I'd rather have a nine to five because I, I just felt like I was waking up and just having unfulfilling days, especially when you lose money, right? It's like you wake up instead of having a productive day, you have a negative day. So I think when it comes to this type of lifestyle, like one, you need to be a little bit of a savage, right? Like you need to not be afraid to lock yourself in a room and just work, grind your, your ass off. But two, like you need to actually create like some sort of schedule of life that you enjoy outside of work. You know, like, like not like, like if we're being completely honest, like this type of lifestyle is is genuinely not for everyone, right? Like you wouldn't be on this stream unless you had some sort of desire for this type of lifestyle. So for 99% for of people, like I, I think the nine to five makes more sense, truthfully. Like it's just, you know, consistent income, a lot less to worry about. You don't have to worry about chargebacks, mismanaging finances. You just get a paycheck, pay your bills, whatever's left you can enjoy. But, you know, when it comes to this life, it's like there's a couple factors to it where it's like you need to be savage enough to, 
to work your ass off on your own. And two, like you need to create a life that you enjoy that isn't necessarily revolved around work. Like obviously, you know, Mike goes to BJJ every time at a certain time. Like you need to create the schedule. Like I remember um, I went to Costa Rica in like July and it really hit me like the whole e-com life. Like obviously Tim Ferriss wrote the book, uh, The Four Hour Work Week. It's like, you know, if you're going to live in a place like let's just say New York City where everyone is going to their nine to five in their corporate job and, you know, you're not and you're just kind of working from home, like unless you find a way to occupy your day, like you might go into a little bit of a depression or misery. So it's like for me, like I kind of realized like I, I want to go back to a place like Costa Rica where I can wake up, work for a few hours, hit the waves, surf, hit the beach, do jujitsu, hit the gym. And I feel like that's kind of what it is like it's very easy for like human beings. I truly believe that 99% of people would rather work 60 hour weeks than zero hour weeks. As much as you like to believe you don't want to work, like if you don't work, you're just going to become depressed. So yeah, I think that's my two cents is like the free life is great, but you need to create your dream life. It's not just about like, you don't want to retire. You don't want to sit there and do nothing. Like you want to create a life where you're working the perfect work-life balance. Like you need to actually strive to create that. Otherwise, this, quote, free life will actually start to feel like a prison. Yeah, I mean, That's the, friend, right there. the friends thing, I feel like, is a little, like, I don't, I don't need friends at work. Like, I don't know. I feel like, I feel like you I can't. I understand be... what he's saying. People, people rely on work for their social stimulation. I'm saying I can't even, you can't even have real friends at work. You got the HR department breathing down your ass. You know, I can't make, uh. <laughs> You know, I can't say certain things. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think this kind of the point is that you can find social fulfillment outside of a nine to five job. I mean, at yeah. this point, the majority of my friends don't have nine to five jobs anyway. Well, one thing, I, something like this, but. one thing, one thing that's important here is, uh, I guess you could say, unfortunately, in our uh, the time period that we're living in right now, I I feel like having a real job, like a nine to five job, where your earning potential is really flat, is not good. Like I feel like it's it's becoming harder and harder to make ends meet with like the inflation and and stuff like that. I feel like you have to you know do something where you know you you're just not stuck to like a, a wage. I mean. That's just that just seems to be how it is. So I feel like if you're working for someone else, you're making someone else money, right. even though that's a good fit for most people. Um, I just feel like it's not great right now. No, I a hundred percent. Yeah, agree. I mean, totally. I think I think we're in a sorry. I, I think we're in a kind of dire situation where there's a lot of economic uncertainty. And yeah, I mean, I think at this point, screw having friends because it's hard to even survive off of making like 100k a year in many parts of the country so you have to put yourself in a good financial position first and then you can worry about uh work friends later yeah and that's that's the thing it's i i, I know you guys have gotten this question a lot of oh you know if you're making so much money why start a course but like the thing is with the course is like it does give you that 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 nine to five friends feeling that you might be lacking you know, like you're obviously not going to make friends drop shipping. You're not going to make yeah. friends with your, your customers, or your suppliers. But like when it comes to students, like especially the ones that take the program seriously. And and, you know, I don't want to sit here and say like people aren't on your level or my level, but the students that prove to be on our level. Right. Like 
the students who end up going the distance and doing six figure months, like it's very easy to become good friends with them. And truthfully, like I became good friends with a lot of my students. And it's like, had I not started a course in community, like there's a lot of friends that I just wouldn't have. And a lot of them are high level too. Like they're the exact friends you want to be making. Cause like, you know, let's be real. Like your friends from high school, you know, that are becoming cops and firefighters, like there's nothing wrong with that, but it's like, you know, you run out of things to talk about. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And we've, we've seen people inside the build assets online community meeting up, talking to each other, having fun. So yeah. Did they, to, uh... did the people meet up? Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that. I'm not going to name names. I'll tell you afterwards. Yeah. I saw it on Instagram. I mean, somebody's going, yeah. I mean, I talk to them on Instagram, you know, we're friends. They're hanging out, but anyway, let's uh, get to these final questions and we'll, we'll wrap this up. Timothy said, how effective are remarketing ads for high ticket dropshipping? Was it a pivotal move? Um, kind of not really in the beginning. Like this is something you only want to worry about really after you're getting a bunch of sales. So this is a later problem. Really, if you're not making sales, your first problem is get sales, get that going. And retargeting is kind of just like the, the cherry on top for that. I think people think retargeting is going to be like this magical thing where it's going to just make your store that much more effective. And it's certainly helpful, but like, again, the main warm ads, whatever you want to call them, like the regular ads are what's going to get you probably 60 to 80% of the way there. Jared, are we in a crypto bull run? Financial advice time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, listen, I don't, I'm like the meme financial advisor, you know, like the one that you don't want to ask. But um, if you want my honest opinion, right, like a bull run technically isn't until we're 20% above all time highs and a bear run is the opposite. So like, you know, the real FOMO technically hasn't even started in my personal opinion. Like, you know, when you look at the cycles of crypto, right, how the 2017 high, 2018 high was like 18K. And then in 2021, we hit 69, right? So think about it. Like it went from 18 back down. So, so pretty much, right? Like the top becomes the bottom to my understanding. So like right now the top is 69,000, which technically means that when this bull run ends, 69,000 should be the bottom of the next bear run. So with that being said, in my personal opinion, the bull run technically doesn't start until we're at all time highs. Now, obviously I've been holding through and through regardless, and I don't really plan on selling anytime soon. I do have a plan to sell based on like my own portfolio, right? Because like the thing about market money is it's all fake money. The same way like drop stream money could be fake if, if you mismanage it. So it's like, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to be a, what's called a round tripper in crypto. You know, a round tripper is someone who watches their money go up and then watch it go all the way down, which is what I've done already. <laughs> Like, like I've been around tripper already That's and funny. I understand that like as a human being, we're never going to time the perfect top or the perfect bottom. So with that being said, you know, I, I look at my own personal portfolio where it's at right now and I have my own personal targets that I think are, that makes sense with the market, right? Cause obviously the market doesn't care about you. It doesn't care about your money. So you need to have this balance of like when you're going to sell at a point that makes sense for you and makes sense for the market, right? Cause if I said, Oh, I'll sell Bitcoin when it's at a million dollars. Like I do think it'll get to a million, but it's not going to get to a million this bull run, right? Probably in the next 10, 15 years. But me personally, I, I do want to sell, you know, maybe 50% of my crypto in the next year or two, just because 
you know, when you're playing a large stakes, a high stakes game, it's like, yeah, may I get, may I be frustrated if I sell at a hundred and then it goes to 200? Yes. But if I make a couple hundred grand off, you know, virtually doing nothing, you know, I got to count my blessings. So to answer your question, I truly believe that there will be a blow off top in the regards of 69, you know, somewhere in the one to 200 range will be, you know, towards like the top of this run. I, I could be wrong. Right. I've been wrong a million times before. I'll add it to the list of L's. But, um, you know, I, we've talked about hyperinflation. So, you know, when you talk about the fundamentals of the world, like everything makes sense for Bitcoin to go up a lot. But, you know, like I said, I've been proven wrong a million times before. So <laughs> real uh, maturity we're seeing from Jared today. <laughs> Yes, all of our friends live in uh, their mom's basement. <laughs> okay, last question here. I, I, I see you, being like, have any of you guys been to a trade show to get suppliers on board? That's a great question. So uh, I know, Mike, obviously you've been to a lot for stores that were, you're not associated with. Oh, I, I'm not associated with, sorry. But um, as you guys, as, as we mentioned on the beginning of this call, I moved to Vegas for a couple of years. And that all started with me and Mike going to a trade show for a store that we own together. So the obvious answer to that question is yes. And, you know, honestly, like, you know, if you know, understand taxes and write-offs, like there's no better write-off than finding a reason to travel to a city you've never been to for a trade show. Like, you know, we went, we had a great time. We enjoyed Vegas. Um, we did close some suppliers that we actually made a couple bucks with. And, you know, like I said, I ended up loving Vegas, loved how cheap the rent was, loved that there was no state income tax and led me to living there for years, may even end up moving back one day. So it's like, yeah, man, definitely go to trade shows. Honestly, trade shows are tough because, you know, you end up getting 30, 40 business cards and then you go home next week and you're like, now what? You know, like it's very, very stressful to actually turn those suppliers into, you know, real suppliers on your website. But I 100 percent recommend going. And I know, Mike, you've told me this in the past, like. You know, you'll which actually did happen for us. You'll find suppliers that you would have never closed um, online in trade shows, and sometimes those suppliers can be real, real winners. A lot of times in trade shows, you'll find suppliers that have nothing, like no website, no anything, which then it kind of becomes impossible. But yeah, hundred percent recommend trade shows. You'll have fun, find a reason to travel, and you know you're getting face to face supplier talking experience. It's a blast, honestly. I've acquired one of my biggest suppliers ever through a trade show. But in, yeah, in terms of like time efficiency, it's not going to be the most efficient thing, to be honest. And I mean, we've gone to trade shows also where we didn't get any suppliers. And maybe that was just for lack of trying, but it is a, a fun experience. And, you know, going back to the nine to five thing, it's like a good way to really feel like you're actually uh, doing something in this world. Like, wow, you know, I'm, I'm actually participating in a, the global economy here. I'm not just sitting in my mom's basement, you know, clicking buttons. So it's fun to I, get out and maybe do that. I, I got to be honest. I get a little scared, li like leaving the house. Like, I like when I, uh, you know, we we would we, we were doing early morning uh, jujitsu on Monday, and I was out the door like, however early, like it was pretty early, like, and I was on the road, and all these people were driving, and I was like, wow, what's what's going on here? It was kind of want to see their friends. <laughs> it was kind of uh, it was kind of jarring. 
I got a funny uh, trade show story. Like I remember I went with uh, with two of my friends and I part I was partnered on both stores, right? They were both similar niche stores. So obviously any supplier in that trade show could have went on any store. And I was just like with both of them because I was like both I was both their mentors, both their partners. So I remember there was suppliers and it was like, oh, well, how do we choose which supplier goes to which store? And I remember we were just playing rock, paper, scissors. It's like, all right, whoever wins gets this supplier, whoever wins gets that one. And yeah, that's just kind of like how unserious sometimes you have to just take life in business, right? Like a lot of people, you know, the beginning of this call was all about call, closing suppliers and value for that. And it's like, just don't take it too serious, you know, take your, be, be confident about yourself. And, you know, I, I know we want to talk about my future and what like the new stuff I've been doing. I know we're running out of time, but like the new stuff I've been working on, like calling, you know, those people is so much more stressful than calling suppliers. When I got back into calling suppliers, it was like, you know, it was such a breath of fresh air. Like it was just so much easier than than yeah. what I've been doing. Yeah, I don't think we're going to have time to go into it. But long story short, when you're calling suppliers, you're trying to sell stuff to them. I mean, what you're, the new thing you're doing is basically trying to acquire clients. And acquiring a client is a whole different ballgame than uh, acquiring a supplier. Acquiring yeah. a supplier, you don't got to be nervous about. You know, there's really not much on the line, if anything. Yeah, I mean, that's why it's so funny when people that are new are nervous, right? Because it's like, obviously for guys like us, like maybe we were nervous five years ago, but now it's like, we just laugh at it. Yeah. All right, let's call it Mike's AirPods lost connection. He can't hear or, <laughs> hear or speak. So let's um, call it here. Uh, if you guys want to know where to find us, buildassetsonline.com slash enroll or buildassetsonline.com slash class. Either way, you could book a strategy call with us, see if you're a, a good fit for us to work together. Jared, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, do you want to let people know where to find you or not really? <laughs> yeah, I mean, thanks for having me. Um, you guys can follow me on inst on Instagram at ecomjared. I mean, I don't really, I'm not really as active as I once was. And obviously I'm not really doing mentorships and whatnot. I do, I do plan on doing like one-on-one -on -one calls for people that were my students in the past, just because... You know, I definitely feel a little bad for abandoning my community in ways. But um, yeah, if you want, you can follow me there. Um, but obviously, if you guys are new, never did this business, want to learn, you know, these are the guys to learn from. These are the guys that taught me everything. As, as Joe said uh, once, I, I might be working at McDonald's if it wasn't for them. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. Oh, what's it? I'm looking on your Instagram right now. You got uh, Jared's watches. What the, what's this? Yeah, I, I I was doing watch flipping for a bit. Um, I might get into it. I'm more into watch collecting at this point. Like I do believe watches are a great asset. They're tough to flip. Um, you could make money with them flipping, but you honestly, I don't really recommend it for low end watches. Like I think like if you're a big baller and could buy some 20, 30 K watches, then you can make some quick, some good money. But, um, and, and that's definitely one of my, my plans as I start to offload my crypto is to kind of just cycle from crypto into watches. But I, I do... I do currently hold like 15, 10 to 15 K worth of watches that I've just been uh, chilling on. Wow. All right, guys, with that, uh, thanks for joining us and uh, take it easy. Take it easy. <laughs>